welcome to the Jane Eyre podcast for Mrs. Rose's AP Lit class. I'm Grace. I'm Emily Hoy. I'm Amelia Matusik. And we get to talk about all the fun things in Jane Eyre. Um, and it's thick, so this is probably going to be long. <laughs> uh, but here we go. Let's, let's begin. Alrighty, uh, we're going to dive right in, starting with character. Um, and I will be the main speaker on that. I'm Grace. Um, so basically, I wanted to get in first, um, talking about Bertha. Um, I wanted to explore this idea of her as, like, Jane's dark parallel. Not quite a foil. She's not a foil to Jane. Um, but maybe a manifestation of Jane's evil or darker desires. Like, kind of the inner workings of her mind, which she doesn't really get to express, um, as an individual herself. And she doesn't necessarily like that part about herself either. Exactly. Yeah. That's very true. Um, so I think Bronte really explores the darker side of, like, the typical Victorian woman. Um, you know, because normally they're, you know, gentle and reserved and put together and, um... Most of them are very beautiful. Jane, in this sense, is plain. Um, but this darker side is not often shown in the Victorian area, nor was it probably shown in Bronte's real life. Mm -hmm. So she probably wanted to reflect it in her novel um, because that kind of darkness and um, evil and inner desire can really be explored in a fictional world. Um, so I just... Bertha as that character because, you know, she's feral. Mm -hmm. She's... Um, She's described as an animal. Um, she's with Rochester, but she's really not all there mentally. Mm -hmm. um, so I just really think it explores that idea of the darker Victorian woman. Yes, Bertha is also very violent. She's known to like set things on fire when she gets a hold of like the alcohol, and it's she like bites it's, people, bites people, yeah. attacks people. So it's very much that she's most likely upset with her situation in the moment and mm -hmm. she can act out whereas Jane may not be able to in her certain situations. Yeah, right. For sure. And having having Bertha there as Jane's like darker parallel, it adds like the element of like the gothic lit to it all. You know for what I mean? sure. Like because that's just something that we talked about um in the novel not being what you expect it to be, you know? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um I wanted to move on into kind of the idea of Jane's, like, abusers, for lack of a better word. So we have her cousin John. We have her aunt, Mrs. Reed. Um, we have Mrs. Brockle, or Mr. Brocklehurst, excuse me. Um, you know, the, the director and the headmaster at um, Lowood. And I think these, these people function as just forward-pushing markers in Jane's journey. If she didn't experience this trauma through these characters, um, you know, the... The taunting and the bullying of John, um, and the the conceited and and you know downright evil Mrs. Reed, um, and the hypocritical uh, Mr. Brocklehurst. I think if she wouldn't have experienced all that, those are all set points in her journey through life. That the violence and the trauma kind of like pushed her forward. She's like, well, I don't want to dwell in this violence, mm -hmm. and I don't want to be like these people. So they kind of pushed her forward in her journey. Um, yeah, I don't know. Any comments on that, you guys? Yeah, I think that that helps her, like, seeing these people that she obviously doesn't look up to, you know? Mm -hmm. She, um, it helps her, like we said, almost, like, push down her, any, like, darker urges or part of herself, even though, like, sometimes you should acknowledge that part of yourself, but in her case, it helps her to, like, maintain, like, 
herself and not like give in almost to like any like darker tendencies yeah. or she might have like under the surface her morals yeah at this point it makes her stick to her morals exactly sure. um and then there's this idea of the fact that when good things come to jane she blows them off even when she doesn't have to have to and this comes up in our discussion later i know we're probably going to touch on it again but um for example uh the tea set um brought up in chapter three um and chapter 21 um it says that like she can't like be- um bessie bessie is making this tea for her and it's on this beautiful plate and it's this nice little cute um pastry or whatever and it's given to jane jane is allowed to use this at this point despite her status within the reed family and she doesn't she doesn't use it because she doesn't think that she can based upon um what has happened in her past and her social status and where so, she came from. exactly so when good things come to her she thinks she can't even accept those even though in that sense she's allowed to at that yeah. point her self her self-confidence is almost like at its all-time low like she doesn't think she deserves all the great things that she may mm-hmm. be able to have in some situations like yes she's had a hard life but even when she's um provided the comfort she almost turns it away because she yes. doesn't really know how to handle that since she's never had it and it's a brand new concept for her and so when John uh, in chapter 29 yes. St. John gives her a, a cup of tea and she does drink it it's almost like a turning point for her character mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that she now has found a family that cares for her uh, with her and with St. John and the sisters she feels comfortable for like the first time they make her feel deserving of like love and affection yeah. exactly um but if you think about before that in chapter 21 she she doesn't accept the love from rochester yes. you know there's other underlying um factors there but ultimately he's a good thing that's come to her and she cannot accept it um but then as you stated um she moves past that and um, accepts the fact that once she's gained um, enough confidence in herself, she can go back to Rochester and accept that romantic love and the good that's come to her. Um, so she no longer thinks she doesn't deserve anything. Yeah. But um, she's growing and I think in her the, relationships. The, the turning point for that is definitely her quest. Um, as it says in, like, uh, how to read literature, like, a professor, her quest is very, it changes her as a character. After she goes off and meets a family who cares about her, she comes back as a new person and is able to accept the love that Rochester has for her. Mm-hmm. For sure. And real quick, last thing for character. Um, we're really going to dive into this later, Emily. I know you're going to kind of um, continue this idea, but how, the fact as characters, how Roche- uh, Rochester and St. John are foils. Um in in character and the main underlying point that we have for that is the fact that john refused love like like true love in his sense for him um and rochester didn't um and i know emily you're gonna get into all that later so uh we'll move on to setting okay so um now we're gonna dive right into setting um i'll be be the main being the main like discusser of this one it's amelia um so starting out, the one of the first things we notice is that like the story isn't given direct like location names. Besides the names of the manors, like Gates Gateshead, Lowood, Thornfield, we don't know what city or 
I guess, area that the story is set in. The, I, the purpose for this with the author is to give the story more of a timeless feel and it can allow the reader to apply the story to their life better because the narrative is not like restrictive at all. Um, this allows the events to take place almost independently and um, isolated from everything else. So we can, as readers, look at this and like see, oh, that might relate to another place in our life and another location that we've been in, like in the past or in that we might be in the future. Like our journeys as people, we usually follow a bit of an arc. You know, you grow up in one place or two, maybe if you move, and then you go off either to college or a job or you move somewhere else, and and then we have our own like life journey of our own. And Jane Eyre is a story of a woman's life. It's her like the biggest part of her life, you know? Mm -hmm. And we get to follow that with her and the location not being a like confined place really lets us see our life in her and apply it. And that's like another big, great big theme of literature that a lot of authors do. And that makes a great story is when you can see it through yourself. Yeah, I just real quick, I think um, that kind of ties into the deal of empathy as well too. Like. Mm -hmm the immersive effect that not giving specific locations except for like naming uh the place where she grew up or like yeah but no like large setting i think that allows for that idea of empathy as well we mm -hmm. can empathize with jane uh, bringing that idea of re relatable for um, sure and it allows us to apply like there's no there's not too many besides like tea i guess there's not too many <laughs> cultural customs yeah. present in the novel um it's more just direct events of someone's life so you can almost take it wherever you live and you can apply it in some way, which is like also great because it makes the story way more timeless and universal to a wider audience as well. So a big thing with location in the novel is that she changes location almost at every time when she is going into a different part of her life. So when she starts out at Gateshead, she is like brand new. We have, she's a child, you know, we don't know anything about her and she all we know is that she is like resentful to her you know aunt and family and she wants to like fight back i guess because she resists like the red room and she tries to get out of it and she cries and everything and it's a very like traumatic experience so in that point we are just like it's like the foundation like the you know kernel of truth under her character i guess you could say and then she goes to lowood where she is brought up in her education and at this point she is like learning that she deserves more. She wants, she fights to get into Lowood, she fights for her education, and she's like building her character from there. It's another big point in her life and a turning point from just like thinking that she's not deserving and dealing with being treated badly. She's actively trying to to fight being treated that way and she makes friends and that like whole stage of her life. And then when Bertha dies, we kind of, that's the end of our time at Lowood in this, as readers in the story. It goes about six years past. Um, in the Do you mean Helen? When Helen dies? Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. So no, you're good. <laughs> yeah, when Helen, Helen dies, correction. Yeah, Helen, good. correction. We, um, when she dies, that's our, and the end of our time as readers at Lowood, and then it skips forward six years, and basically, so we know that not too much else has happened with Jane there. She said it's like, it was a very boring time, it was fine, you know, whatever. And then when she goes to Thornfield after being at Lowood, it's a new point in her life. She's out of school, she's educated, she's, you know, ready to basically like, take on the world and like do what she wants with her life. It's now hers. She isn't forced into school or forced by teachers to do anything and she isn't under the control of someone an adult or like a parent figure over her so that's definitely an, a new point in her life and then we signify that with the move to thornfield physically she's being put in different locations when big events and turning points in her character happen 
so at Thornfield, she is obviously like a lot of the story takes place here. She um, meets Mister, like she meets Rochester. She, um, you know, finds out about Bertha, and like that's where she falls in love, you know, and which is a big part of her story, because she there's so much that goes on with that, and you know she doesn't accept love, and then everything. That's a bigger themes we'll get to later, but um, at when she goes to Thornfield, it signifies this new point, and yeah, so. Then the next part of her life is when she finds out that Rochester has been married before and she leaves to go to her cousin's house. So this point is like Emily mentioned earlier, like this quest of hers, this like epic, you know, quest where she is trying to find herself and she, so at, in all her time at Lowood, she was very secure in her character. Besides the time with the, when Rochester was like teasing her with flirting with the other lady, she was pretty secure in the fact that she loved him and that she... Like she found her, she found out that she loved him. She realized it. She came to terms with it. She was very solid as a character, and then she was happy because she was going to be married to him. And then this all fell apart, and she was like in a giant emotional spiral, you know, when um, she found out he wasn't, um, I guess, faithful, um, and he had been married before, and he wasn't honest with her. So this change in her life goes on when she goes to her cousin's house because she's finding well, she doesn't know her she doesn't know these are her cousins at the time, but she's seeking help and guidance and. She just needs to get out, you know? She Something traumatic happened and she just needs to go, which is also another kind of relatable point, like fight or flight. And, and with it is like a human concept, you know? When, for sure. When things happen, we either we stay and we fight for it, and but in her case, she ran. She The flight part of that. Mm -hmm. She just needed to get out, which everyone can relate to, and that also helps to, you right. know, as us as readers to have empathy for her. Yeah. And that's, real quick, that's not necessarily cowardice in her yeah. flight. It's just... She needs the time away. She needed you the know, space. Exactly. Yeah, it's part of the human experience. A, and, yeah. you know, and working through trauma or betrayal or all that. I mean, diving right into, like, fighting sometimes, that that wasn't her way. Yeah. So she just needed time to work through. So it wasn't necessarily cowardice. I'm sorry. You're good. I'm so sorry. No, you're good. <laughs> especially in her society, she may not have ever been able to ex fight back, back mm -hmm. when, like, as a woman, she did not have much say in the, uh, things happening around her. Um, but she knew that whatever happened with Rochester, she loved him, but, uh, she couldn't really, she's never seen a demonstration of how to fight for what she wants. Mm -hmm. So the only way as a human, our natural instinct to do is run away. She's never had a woman figure in her life that's strong enough or, or not strong enough, but had enough say in the society around her. And mm -hmm. so that's a brand new thing for her to be able to run and get safety. Yeah, and adding this new location definitely adds to the point that the book isn't just a romance novel, you know what I mean? Yeah. It adds, it's like, it's a quest. It's her finding herself and her finding her purpose in life. And through being at um, her cousin's house, she is able to find herself a little more and find her, like, chosen family, which at the time, again, she didn't know was her actual family. That's just, mm -hmm. like, I guess, irony. Um, <laughs> because yeah. the fact that she found these people that she got along so well with and felt like she belonged with and she they gave her what she needed in the time and space, she um, was able to like have her like chosen family become her real family because she found out they were related. Mm -hmm. You know, and that adds to the whole aspect of her life just not being a romance novel. It's her life, you know? And um, so then next, obviously, she goes back to Lowood when she, you know, discovers like that it's been you know burned and Bertha and everything so she goes back uh, to Rochester actually and just and that last change is when she finally accepts the love you know and she accepts that she can be happy and she doesn't have to punish herself and she 
has found herself and she's happy and she knows what she wants because she experienced with St. John an opportunity for love, quote, love, you know, or an opportunity for, I guess, companionship. And she realized that that wasn't what she wanted. She wanted love. And that, so that was a turning point in her realization. And then it made her change location again, which is like signifying another chapter and like turning point in her life. So that wraps up setting. Thank you, Amelia. And next, I will be talking again for us um, on structure and the structure of the novel. So it's obviously super lengthy, so we have a lot of time to dissect and see what um, Bronte's structure is and how she writes the novel. So obviously, it's a very, very, very descriptive and lengthy and long-winded style of writing. She, It's not quite to the point, and that's a big um, tendency in classic literature and classic novels is that they aren't gonna be short and to the point because that's not the style of the time and that's not what you can ex that's not what you're gonna expect and obviously we all knew that going into this but um that helps us the structure of the novel definitely helps to develop the like themes and style of not only style of writing but like style of um, plot that she adds because the plot has so many different twists and turns and it goes on and on and on and that's kind of how her writing goes. Mm -hmm. There's lots of run-on sentences and um, long descriptions of setting and like every little detail is portrayed in some way. Yeah. There's basically nothing left out. It's a, like it's a giant mural of mm -hmm. her life, you know? We don't yeah. just get a snippet, we don't just get anything. It's so exactly. complex. Yeah. The com yeah, the complexity, I was just about to say that, the complexity of the writing reflects the complexity of Jane's life. Yeah, like, completely. Not that it's all over the place in an unorganized manner, but it's all over the place. And, yeah. And so is so is Jane's life. Yeah, she has like she as a person in her story of her life has so many twists and turns and like we said in the last part segment, like lots of different location changes and like life changes and obviously that's to convey like everyone's life is like that, you know what I mean? There's hardly anyone that you could find their story and it would be like necessarily boring or stagnant you know so the structure and like in the complexity in how Bronte writes definitely has a big impact in relation to this like the the plot and what's going on so yeah um anything else to add guys um I mean I think you covered it it's just her structure is you know it follows the coming of age story yeah um like you were saying off it off recording um yeah it almost fo it follows her life as from when she's a little girl to a grown adult and that coming of age is shown through the long like long journey of the in long de mm -hmm. descriptions yes. of the book that we see her grow into a fully developed adult from a child and i think that's shown through the long right and mm -hmm. a and a story like this like um, structurally, it has to be chronological, at least yes. for the most part, um, because if it were to be written, you know, not in chronological order, that can just get um, kind of confusing for a story um, as complex mm -hmm. as this. Um, and the, the structure is obviously, like, although it's complex and it's very detailed, it still flows. It does. And, same yes. with, and the story as well, it's very complex and detailed, but it flows. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is, I think, very important because like while there are shocking moments everything makes sense and there's and that mm -hmm. and like the fact that nothing is left out because the story is complex and there's so many twists and turns with the writing being complex and nothing being left out i think it really helps to 
make sure that the reader is understanding what's going on and that like there's nothing left out and you're not confused at what's going on and the story can flow because there's mm-hmm. it's such a detailed descriptive style of writing yeah, yeah that real quick just reminds me of what we talked about briefly in character how those significant points in her life push the story along mm-hmm. you know like the abuse or you know if she would never went into the red room maybe she would have never left mm-hmm. um uh, Gateshead. So it's kind of like th- that's that's also part of the structure of that flow. Um, you know, Bronte does a really good job of putting those moments in there to help that story move along, even though it's kind of long-winded and crazy. Yeah, and I think it, that it's long. If you were to write a story of your life, it would also be long. It, I mean, this story is Jane's life. It's mm-hmm. how her how she's grown up. So like, uh, so many big happenings in her life are portrayed mm-hmm. lengthily just like anyone else else's life would be. Yeah, and I don't know if this would... This is getting a little bit into narration as well, but mm-hmm. she does talk to the reader, you yes. know? Mm-hmm. It, this is written as a diary or a biography. Yeah, she, yeah. dra- she breaks the fourth wall continuously. It yes. is written from her point I think, of view. Yeah. And I think that's a good segment into narration. Yeah, yeah. sounds good. Okay, so now leading into narration, as we're talking about... Um, Jane seeing writing the book from her perspective or as like a diary or a biography of some sort she breaks the fourth wall constantly throughout the book where she's always directly speaking to the reader for example um on my book it's page 447 she says reader I forgave him at that moment and on the spot and it's almost like she's talking to her diary or like saying like dear diary or kind of like writing out her thoughts so that she knows kind of how she feels about a situation like she's reflecting um we experience her troubles through her own eyes uh her troubles her loneliness her feelings towards um rochester we we see it through herself herself and this functions as the narration and it brings us closer to her as a character and closer to her as a protagonist um, the function of her narration is used to bring the readers closer to her because this is a timeless novel where anyone in any decade or any time period can uh, bring it back to her because we've all experienced um, emotions that is sometimes we need to get it out of our head so we write it down during our diary or a biography or uh, just kind of talk it out with our friends. That seems to be what Jane is doing with this book. For sure. Um, the one thing that is, that does come with this is that we are reading the book through her opinions on people, and this can lead into like maybe where she may be somewhat unreliable because we are learning about a character through her opinion and through her own personal thoughts, and her as a character may she as a character may have different opinions from us as the reader, um, and. The fact that she doesn't say any names of the places that she brings up where she's telling a diary, um, that may be because she is writing um, from her own memory and maybe she may not remember the time or is so significant to her that she as knows that if she's going to look back at her diary, that's exactly what she's going to think of as that place, that she doesn't need to directly state it. Um, so the for- breaking the breaking of the fourth wall is very interesting, and it's a unique way of writing that may not have been as common during that time. 
Um, it's because we normally are reading a book from the outside, not as if Jane was our friend or uh, or a companion who was like talking to you. But mm-hmm. that's how this book is written, and it's really it's a really interesting way Bronte for for her to take where she is almost writing as Jane. She's becoming Jane when she writes this book. It really reminded me of almost like a parent telling a kid, like a child the story of their life as a bedtime mm-hmm. story or something like that. Yeah. That's what I definitely got from there because my mom always used to tell me like stories about her life to help me fall asleep at night and that's kind of what it, the vibes I'm getting from it is that it's just someone that like is caring and you, like you know personally telling you about their life because they want you to know what happened. Yeah. And it, it, it's like that idea of, like, when, you, when you're when you retelling a story and it happened to someone else, there's all those little, like, emotional details that are left out because it's being told about someone else. Mm-hmm. But, like, you're saying this one is, like, very much um, immersive and from, like, almost written from Bronte herself um, through Jane. So we really get to see through Jane and the breaking of the fourth wall um, those emotional things that only come from um, a primary source. Yes. as opposed to like a secondary source mm-hmm. and I think that's why us seeing it through her seeing the story through her own lens and her own opinions really changes the way the book stays through time and the way um, it can leave an emotional like scar on you mm-hmm. sure Okay, um, I guess that concludes our like specific narration section. Um, so I, Grace, will be moving on to figurative language. Um, this is a pretty hefty topic. Uh, there's a vast majority of uh, different types of figurative language throughout Jane Eyre. I think even when you were talking before, Amelia, like about the complexity mm-hmm. of the structure, yeah, <laughs> like that just know. ties in with the figurative language. Like there's just so much going on. So I picked out some of the bigger ones that I thought um, were really impactful. Um, So the first one I wanted to get into was her just use of constant biblical allusions. They're everywhere um, throughout the novel. Um, Some specific ones, uh, chapter four, uh, her entire discussion about hell and um, her character with uh, Mr. Brocklehurst at Lowood. Um, In chapter six, which is, uh, it's, uh, the direct quote is on page 55 of my book, but um, there's a direct quotation um, from the Bible there. It says, the Bible bids us return good for evil. Um, that's stated in multiple passages in the Bible, First Peter, Proverbs, Romans, all of those. Um, another specific would be uh, chapter 32. Uh, that's um, conversations about um, between Jane and St. John about being a missionary. There's the biblical aspect there. Um, and then lastly, for another specific uh, page, or excuse me, chapter 38, um, and in my book, page 459, um, that's right near the end, where she states, where Jane states, um, no woman was ever nearer to her mate than I am, ever more absolutely bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. That is also a direct quotation from the Bible. Um, so those are just kind of the really like specific instances, some... Uh, some examples of where she directly alludes to the Bible. Um, And then I'll get into that a little bit more later, but uh, I wanted to move on into imagery because there's a lot of that. Um, So as a whole throughout the book, it it, um, automatically boosts the empathy 
um, of how we feel um, as the readers um, due to an easier picture in their own mind of what the characters are experiencing. So that kind of ties in with narration, actually, um, because that breaking of the fourth wall, like we said, um, ties into making it easier for us to understand the emotional aspects. Um, so yeah, that was just like imagery as a whole. Specifically getting into biblical imagery, um, the moment where Jane runs away from Rochester um, in chapter 27, uh, that's lots of loaded in biblical language there. So to get into the specifics, um, she says, it's a terrible moment full of struggle and blackness and burning. Not a human being that ever lived could ever wish to be loved better than I was loved. And, and him who thus loved me, I absolutely worshiped. And I must renounce love and idol. One dread word compromised my intolerable duty. Depart. Um, so this imagery here um, of her absolutely turning her back and running in the opposite direction of Rochester, uh, that alludes to the Israelites and their worship of the golden calf. Um, when Moses went up onto the mountain, whole story there. <laughs> um, but Jane worships Rochester in this sense, and it makes her realize that she needs to leave him to save herself. Like, it is her duty to leave him. She cannot continue to worship this idol in her life um, because it's ultimately getting her nowhere. Yeah, and that comes back to that she doesn't accept the love that she... Exactly. Is, uh, ...given in that moment that she doesn't, feel, doesn't she feel she deserves mm -hmm. it. Yeah, she's, like, too low to be with him. Right. Um, so in this instance, uh, on top of that, Jane embraces the religious life um, in leaving Rochester rather than live with him in chain. Um, so that's also an allusion to a previous point in the book where Miss Brocklehurst and their whole talk about hell um, and what she's willing to do and her character and, and all that. It's also interesting because when she leaves Rochester, she's choosing her religion over her like desire to fall in love with Rochester, and then after that she goes to St. John, where St. John is, where we'll get into later, he's the uh, foil, and he's, um, oh, I lost my reading. Okay. Thought. Um, he's the opposite, he's more of like a minister, so he's mm -hmm. preaching to her while she's there about um, missionary and being a companion in life, mm -hmm. so it's the, very, the very opposite she's running away from. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and then an influence for this figurative language, I looked a little bit into Bronte's life, like specifically, because, you know, that is basically half the influence for this book. Um, so a lot of that figurative language and biblical imagery throughout this novel is affected by Bronte's own human experience, um, such as her attendance at the Cohen Bridge School for clergymen's daughters, um, which uh, Lowood and its strictness was actually modeled after. It was modeled after one of Bronte's own schools that she attended. Um, so that school taught theology that human beings are corrupt and they need Christ to save them. So that's the emphasis upon the puritanical morality and rigidity. So that's a direct quote from the reverend of Bronte's school. Um, so that just kind of brings the idea in like why we see all this strictness um, in the religion. And it's because it was so have Bronte's life was so heavily impacted by that. There's no way she could have excluded it from a book like this. Mm -hmm. Um... And then a little bit more to get into for figurative language is I wanted to move into another specifics of similes. Um, there's countless, countless metaphors, similes, um, figurative language, but specifically for similes, there's a lot in her emotional passages. 
um, and then I wanted to explore it um, in its in the its use of nature um, and how she, how Bronte uses it um, with the nature and its forces. So um, I also did a little bit of research into Bronte's life for this as well, and she grew up around a lot of nature. Um, she took a lot of walks on the moor near her house. Um, so that kind of also ties into the novel. Like we keep saying here, it's like a repetitive thing. Bronte's mm -hmm. life impacted the book. Yeah. Um, so for example, she uses the four elements a lot um, for like water and air um, to get into more specifics. Uh, some words are clouds, dew, water, vapor, mist, wind, all of that. Um, and there's an example when Jane wakes up after the experience in the Red Room. She specifically states, I heard voices too speaking with a hollow sound and as if muffled by a rush of wind or water, agitation, uncertainty, and all predominating sense of terror confused my faculties. So that's page 17 in my book, um, beginning of chapter 3. Uh, and that shows how her use of water and air elements serve to clarify the text and what Jane is feeling. Um, so it makes it easier to understand and emphasizes the significance of Bronte's simile use. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Um, also with her life, I was going to say like how it influences that. I read um, The Things They Carried. And, did I? Yes. <laughs> sorry, The Things They Carried. And um, one of the points in that book is that, um, that the author points out a lot is that writing can be therapeutic for authors and for the people that are writing them. And it can help them work through like their own life experiences and trauma. And I think that's definitely something that we can see through Bronte a little bit. She wants to get it all down into this like brick of a book um, and get her life down and get her feelings down so mm -hmm. she has a, one, a solid memory of it for herself and also so it can be passed down and other people can like read it and see it. And, it's, and when she was writing this, probably reflecting a little bit on her own life, obviously she's like, like Jane is like not named like Charlotte, you know, like she's not like making a direct biography, but it's essentially that's what it is, I guess. Um, and so we can see like that this could be therapeutic for her, and that's why so many things are influenced by her Bronte's own life in the book. Yeah, yeah, she definitely projects onto Jane because she allows Jane to end up with the love of her life when we know um, through research that Charlotte was forced to marry someone that she did not in love, love and she was forced into this marriage that wasn't what Jane was offered. She mm -hmm. didn't get that experience. And we can see that she writes it from a yearning, like she wants to be able to have, be in the position Jane wants, uh, Jane is in, and she's projecting onto Jane that Jane should be like more grateful and more understanding. Mm -hmm. And also, um, uh, Charlotte Bronte also uses the elements in her characterization, which we'll get into with uh, St. Saint John and Mr. Rochester being foils. Yeah. She brings those elements into characterization to show the... Um, contrast between the two and makes it more extreme than it might have been with just the solid kind of characterization characterization for sure yeah that this all kind of ties together um but yeah that's that's all i got for uh figurative language the biblical allusions and the specific use of similes um and the imagery so if we wanted to move into literary argumentation Okay, so leading into literary argument, this is, I'm Emily taking a little bit of control here. Um, one of the most, probably easy, like easiest to figure out is that Mr. Rochester and St. John's are most likely foils or are foils. Um, this is very like imminent from the minute she characterizes their, them and the minute Jane meets them. 
Mr. Rochester's, when they first meet, is uh, introduced as swearing. He has a dark face and st stern features. He's older than her, and she finds him handsome, but to others he's seen as more, like, uglier. Um, he's elegant and masculine, and he's always um, kind of portrayed with fire, and which is a very big um, point to when we're pointing out foils. Uh, he's a good figure, he's forward, and he's just more, uh, like, masculine. And assertive as well. Assertive, yeah. yeah. He's very, um, he's just, he's probably, like, the opposite of any man that she's known before. Yeah. Um, and then when St. John is, um, introduced, he's more younger, he's more plain, he's tall, slender, and he's, like, has large blue eyes, and he's more associated with rain when he's out in the weather. Um, as a minister and traveling. And the rain and fire and dark and light between the two are very um, polarizing and that's what may lead them to be foils. Um, another interesting point is that when Jane is reunited with Mr. Rochester, uh, she, he asks about St. John and she says, oh, he's He's all these great things, and he's like, well, why don't you marry him? And she's like, he's not you. So that's, like, shown as, even though St. John is seen as, like, kind of the standard for the time, uh, Jane still picks Mr. Rochester over him. Um, and I think also the way that they interact together is very different. Whenever St. John and Jane speak together, they're kind of awkward conversations. He doesn't really understand, uh, St. John doesn't really understand how to communicate with her. And Mr. Rochester and her have long, deep conversations that go on for almost a whole chapter. And they get closer and closer and closer with those. And it flows naturally as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I think just the entire uh, relationships that Jane has with each of them is completely the opposite of the other. For sure. Um, one other literary argument that we were going to talk about is um, the contrast between John, Eliza, and Georgina, uh, who are her sip, her cousins, or who she grows up with, gro grows up with, and yeah. then her blood cousins, Diana, Mary, and Saint John, at the end of the book, where she finds her family that she's never really had. Um, as a child, John tormented Jane uh, constantly, and then when he grew up as an adult, he ruined his family with gambling and drugs. Um, Eliza and Georgina were always treated better than Jane in childhood, and um, as in adulthood, Georgina's vain and lazy and materialistic, and Eliza's quiet and religious and independent. However, she insults Jane. Uh, she directly says, you had no right to be born for you make no use of life. Uh, now these are very like, um, they're, they're very abusive to her and uh, pick on her her whole childhood and even into adulthood. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very polarizing to what she finds with St. John, Diana, and Mary. Uh, the girls, uh, Diana and Mary, are very fair, slender, intelligent. Um, she talks to them for hours, she speaks about how handsome and um, intelligent they are. Mary's um, intelligent, pretty, reserved, mannered. Um, the diction she just uses for those two are completely the opposite. Um, and that's leading more into 
how they treat her and how she feels and uh, belonging. Uh, she feels no belonging when she's growing up with Georgina Eli and Eliza and John. She feels um, almost left out in the dark and without um, any real relationships with them. And then she meets Diane and Marion and they immediately click uh, and they immediately find themselves calling each other sisters before they even know that they're cousins. Um, and then St. John is the opposite of John from her childhood because even though they have the same name, <laughs> um, he respects her and he treats her as a brother and uh, she can look up to him as a religious figure and also as a uh, almost a big brother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Even though he doesn't say it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, from her her perspective. Her perspective. Um, and I think the diction that she's using um, creates just a very large contrast between these people. Bronte's writing uses a lot of opposition and her with her characterization and her diction and her um, situations that she creates in the stories. Uh, these arguments, um, although they're not uh, very hard to find, they're very important to the story in leading how Jane has relationships with each of these characters. Sure. Right, yes. Alrighty, uh, I guess we'll get into our impossible question discussions now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so impossible question time. So. Um, First order of business. Our first impossible question is how does social status influence a person's sense of belonging throughout their course of their life? Mm -hmm. um, so Jane feels b belonging for the first time. Um, well, I guess before that you say for the, in the entirety of her childhood, she doesn't feel belonging. Yes. yes. She feels, she's, you know, ostracized and set apart and She's told abandoned. she's basically worthless by her, right. by her family. Exactly. You know, there, there is no belonging here. She's yes. told she does not belong. Yeah. Um, and the first time she really feels belonging, I would argue, is yeah. with Mr. Rochester. She gets a little mm -hmm. taste of it. That someone mm -hmm. who actually enjoys being around her, um, Adele, she gets to get close with Adele and um, yeah. the other workers in the, house is, mm -hmm. in the house. And then it's kind of stripped away from her. And she has yeah. to be abandoned all over again. Mm -hmm. And then that's when she finds her cousins, um, St. John and everyone, uh, and that's kind of, it sets her, it makes her realize how much she really needs to feel along, uh, mm -hmm. belonged into a community. Yeah, um, yeah, and like, it's, like, she finally realizes that she deserves to be in a place where she's loved and belonged, like, and be feels, belong like, feels like she belongs. And also, you could definitely, I think, a lot of people could definitely argue that, like, um, Helen, when, or is it Helen, right? when Helen died, like with Helen, yeah. that's when she also felt a sense of belonging. But I think that was more, like, to counter that, I guess. I think that that was more of, like, a comforting, that was more just, like, comfort in a really like, bad place. Yeah. Rather than, like, she felt like she belonged. Like, because mm -hmm. you can feel like you belong with a person, but overall that one person can't be everything, you know? And there's a lot of other factors that go into it. Like, she wasn't accepted by pretty much anyone else but this, except for, like, a few teachers and Helen. So I think that you, like you said, the first time she really felt like she belonged was at Lowood with, or Thornfield with Mr. Rochester. Right. And bringing the idea of social status into that, like before then, like she didn't have any status and then mm -hmm. she kind of went um, to Thornfield and she built her status a little yeah. bit. 
Um, and I think she like ultimately it plays a role. But if we're gonna ask like how does it influence, I think um, it has a big influence. But ultimately, I think a person like like Jane did needs to come to terms with the fact that they need to find belonging where they feel most comfortable. Mm-hmm. And belonging. You know what I mean? The, and like an acceptance of their self before the, they yes. expect others to accept them. Yes. For yeah. Sure. And she also finds purpose at Thornfield. She's teaching, mm-hmm. and she's not just like learning and being a child. She's an adult. She has a job. She's has a purpose to keep yeah. going. And I think that also brings her sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I kind of also view it as like with the social status is that she starts out basically like bottom of the barrel. Like she yeah. has no education, no social status, no family. E- even yeah, even within her like like her born into family, which isn't really a family at all. She is. She has no status. She's basically, like I said, bottom of the barrel, like very low starting point. There's mm-hmm. nothing there. And then she gets to, she builds courage through like the, her experiences there and like the abuse she faced there with the red room and everything like that. And then, then after going to Lowood to learn, she is building up her status in through education, mm-hmm. you know, because like knowledge is like power, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she's building in her confidence in herself as well. She's building through learning and being like useful you know and having a purpose is and her purpose is to learn and then like i feel like that that whole experience at lowood builds this builds her social status and like confidence a little bit Mm -hmm. to be able to take a higher social position as a teacher at thornfield you know and like as a like a like basically a nanny i guess (laughs) it's also yeah there and like kind of builds her social status and confidence to help her feel like she can belong somewhere yes mm-hmm. and i think ultimately that building of her social status like you're saying helped her realize her belonging but ultimately at the end she was like i am appreciative of my social status now like i love rochester but that's not who i am anymore mm-hmm. like i'm not just defined by my social status because at this point she had you know she had gone back to her she had gone to her cousin and she was like well i'm more than like i don't want to be with rochester just for like mm-hmm. whatever reason um, and then she comes back as his equal. And she's yes. like, I have this social status, but I also have myself, and I have my morals and my values. Yeah, exactly. And, she and had, all that. And with that, she also, like, her sense of belonging, what I feel like was, like you said, was dependent on her social status for a little bit and, like, how she felt about herself. Mm-hmm. But then she kind of realized that it doesn't have to be that way. Like, I don't know. At the end, I feel like my interpretation of the ending of the story was that she finally come to terms with everything. Yes. She'd come to terms with where she was, like, socially, in, like, the social hierarchy ladder of things. And she had found, like, happiness in herself and everything. And, um, so, the, for sure, so we, um, like, I guess can see that she had the opportunity to marry, um, St. John. And that was, like, a social status climbing opportunity where she could have, like, technically, I guess, belonged because she would have been a minister's wife and, like, had gone to another country to help, you mm-hmm. know, the needy and things like that. So... But she refused that because she knew that, that climbing that social ladder wouldn't have brought her a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm, so while sure. it does influence her in the beginning, I think physical and like or mental strength and like mental growth and as a person can help influence someone's sense of belonging way more than social status can. For sure. Yeah, and that comes to like sustaining life. Like belonging is the most important thing to sustain life, not so much social status. Social status is more of a secondary thing. Mm-hmm. Her love for Mr. Rochester and her growth as a person is more important to the story than just becoming high, right. like higher in the social food chain. For sure. Mm-hmm. All right. I agree. OK, 
Okay, so moving on, we're gonna jump right into our second impossible question, which is why is it so hard for people to believe they are deserving of good things? And this can be, um, I guess, interpreted in a way of just like physical good things, like nice things and um, like fancy things, I guess, or expensive things, but it can also be interpreted in the way of like good friends and like love and relationships and things like that. Mm -hmm. So we, as and like as humans, everyone has related to this in the way that sometimes we don't know why, but we just don't think we deserve to be happy almost, you know? Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> but we just don't think that like it's something that we can't attain because we aren't deserving of it and we've done something wrong when that usually isn't the case. So, yeah. yeah. We touched on this a little bit earlier, like in my character analysis, with the whole like tea situation where she was given the tea on the very nice china and she's like, I can't drink this, like it's too nice for me. Mm-hmm. And then the we've talked about it before, like the whole situation with Rochester. Yeah. The fact that mm-hmm. he was literally like at her feet, like, marry me and she's like, No. Nah. <laughs> yeah. She didn't think she was like good enough. She doesn't think she yeah. was like worthy, so And it's not just her it's like her own ideas that she's not worthy also come from the abuse that she's faced mm-hmm. in her life, you know? For sure. And so many people in our own personal lives and, and, and like, or in the, every person's personal life, this is, like, the human experience and that we all experience very similar things. Yes. There are people in our life who make us feel bad and who make us feel unworthy of love and happiness because they don't think they are and they don't think that anyone else should be deserved to, you know? Mm-hmm. But you're going to face people that, like, don't, that try and make you think that you aren't deserving of it and then you're going to face people that you like that uh make you feel deserving of love like rochester to jane and then like but jane's like born cousins like the one she grew up with who made her feel like she didn't deserve love so yeah yeah and this whole question made me think of the perks of being a wallflower where a very famous quote was like we accept the love we think we deserve um jane does not think that she deserves to have true happiness and true love from rochester she from growing up around John and her other um, people growing up around her, they made her believe that she was less than and that she wasn't worthy of good things and happiness. And that just kind of manifested into her adulthood where she didn't just think she deserved that. And um, after going on the quest, when where she finally gets her true knowledge that she does deserve good things and um, living in a li- living a life of not... Uh, living in a not happy uh, Un- life, unhappy life, unhappy yeah. life. <laughs> um, with St. John would be the worst possible thing because she deserves to have that happiness. She deserves to have a great love um, where Bronte couldn't. And this is kind of bringing in empathy. Yeah. Anyone who reads this book is empathetic with Jane because we've all been in her situation where maybe we don't think we deserve something. Oh, I think that this person deserves um, an award more than me because I didn't try as hard or this or that. And I think that just is the human experience. Yeah, I think that's just, like, society today, too. They just tell you that, like, oh, if you don't have this thing or, you know, that, like, you're not worthy of this. Like, yeah. you don't deserve it because you don't meet this standard. Like, I think a yeah. big you know? thing, so much of today and everything... It's like you can't do anything for enjoyment anymore. It's like it has to be competitive and you have to be the best. And then, But then while you're told that you have to be the best, you have to, you're also forced this idea of there's always someone better, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like people, they're like, you don't deserve to be happy and content with your life because this, this, and this, and you're not the best. Right. And that just isn't like how things are. And it's, and it's a personal journey that each person has to go through on their own. 
like Jane did, and like um, everyone tries to, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, to realize that they are worthy of love, and it's, it's self-love and self-acceptance as well. And yeah. that's Bronte's point of writing the book, is a timeless piece that can make, maybe open someone's eyes to see that they do deserve something. Um, generations and generations would read this book and maybe think, wait, just because I've experienced something similar to Jane in my childhood, I deserve to have a Mr. Rochester, I deserve to have a happy mm-hmm. ending. Exactly. And not be stuck with a mm-hmm. St. John companionship for the rest of my yeah. life. And I like the use of the word timeless, because um, despite, you know, the change in, like, societal customs, yeah. um, and, like, you know, so, some standards, you know, women have made progress mm-hmm. um, in every aspect of life at this point but you know there's still those standards that are so relatable whether when Bronte wrote this book or in 2021 um and like we said that's just like that idea of empathy yeah Mm -hmm. and like that another thing that makes the book so classic and so timeless is that we can relate that every person can relate to it through being empathetic towards her emotions and her experiences that she's facing because it's a challenge that it's like the universal life challenges you know um, and everyone has faced that or will face that or and everyone in the future will face that as well so mm-hmm. that's another thing mm-hmm. yeah um, I think that's really good uh, do we want to move into our third one no yes yeah okay so this one is more focused on religion as a whole but is religion something people feel obligated or compelled to follow or is it a choice that they come up with of their own free will um, so this is kind of the idea of like Religion in this book is so prominent, but it's also kind of confusing because Jane doesn't really want it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, she follows God and she, like, needs him, but she's also like, well, I don't need God, like, I'm not religious. And we see it in different instances. Yeah, and she finds you know? she finds religion confusing. She doesn't yeah. just wholeheartedly believe it. Exactly. So it's, that's a little bit, I guess, ambiguous in the way that we don't understand really what's going on like why is it such a huge symbol and so oftenly referenced mm-hmm. but also why does our main character not wholeheartedly is like is not wholeheartedly devout and you know right involved mm-hmm. um i mean part of the influence was was bronte like just mm-hmm. she we touched on it before she was brought up by an anglican minister and um kind of understood the bible as like this authoritative text that, yeah. you know, it, it guided almost all Victorian life. And, like, your choice. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. There's no way she couldn't include it in the novel, it yeah. being such a big aspect. Um, so I think that's, like, you know, that's the point is, is of where it stems from. But in Jane's character development, you're kind of just like, well, what is this religion to her? Like, like what does it mean? You know? Um, I think also it's just because the time that Bronte was writing this in, it's almost that she, one, wouldn't be able to say that Jane doesn't believe in Mm -hmm. God or in in a certain religion um, just because of the backlash that she would have received. Mm -hmm. And so she may be trying to put her own confusions about the society and how religion coincides with Mm -hmm. society into Jane because, as we've spoken before, she's kind of experiencing some of her life through Jane and making um, connections. Um, in chapter um, in chapter 28, Jane says, I can but die, and I believe in God. Let me try to wait his, his will in silence. So we see that she does somewhat believe in God, because she says it right there. Um, but that's also probably because of 
the society she's been raised in, and also Helen's major religious attributes to the book. Um, that's really the first time we see religion take a very large portion of the book, is when mm -hmm. Helen is talking to her, which we'll get into later more with the power passage, where she talks to her about how death coincides with religion and how God is going to be there when you die. And I think that's a big major change in Jane, because um, the only religious thing that she's seen before that major um, monologue was with Mr. Brocklehurst, mm -hmm. where his religion was more authoritarian and uh, more authoritative, and Helen's is more loving and caring and mm -hmm. comforting. So I think yeah. it does coincide with um, society, but Jane is starting to learn free will with exactly. her own religion. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a, there's a specific point of obligation in her childhood, mm -hmm. and then she moves past that. I think especially um, a turning point was like the scene of St. John, um, where she's like, oh, I don't, like, I'm not going to marry you just because you think I'm going to make a good missionary's wife. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a balance of both. I mean, I guess for younger people, like you might feel, they might feel obligated when they're younger because of their parents. But ultimately, as they grow older, it's of their own free will. Are you going to choose to follow yeah. this religion? Or are you going to, you know, go the other way? And that's yeah. kind of where she takes charge yeah. of her own religion and her own life after that quest. Mm -hmm. And meeting St. John. Yeah, and in so much of, like, I mean, I, in general, like, in this, at this time period that Bronte wrote the book, it was, like, it was not a choice, you know? Mm -hmm. You were obligated to be, like, Christian and devout, you know? And, in, in, like, her like society that she's writing this in like, time and as and which kind of takes a bit of the meaning away from religion almost you know because mm -hmm. religion is your beliefs and if you don't actually believe it but you just feel compelled to believe it what even is it you know what mm -hmm. i mean like that takes some of the point away from it all and um religion is obviously like it's supposed to be i mean it depends on your i guess it depends on the denomination and like the, your faith and yeah, what, your what faith. you're following yes like. but so much of re religion is supposed to be and is personal but yeah. when you're just being told by, like, an authoritarian yeah. hand of just, like, follow this, do this, do this, do this, it's not really, like, yeah. a, a choice, you know? And religion is so so much a part of history and everything. And religion is in everything, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we're it's, talking, like, religion as a whole here right now. Yes, yeah, not just Christianity. Right. Yes. I mean, throughout history, Christianity has been the prominent one. Yes. It, it still is, but, you know... Just religion as a whole at this yeah, point. Yeah, for real. So, and, like, yeah. for sure. Um, <laughs> just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> yes. Um, but, like, religion is, like, has driven so many events in history. Like, the mm -hmm. Crusades, everything. And it was, like, and it, so it kind of, it strays from the point of being, like, faith. And it gets more political and also more, like, historical, I guess. And, and then, and, and Jane as a person and just most, generally most people yeah. have to, like, figure out for themselves, okay, wait, this isn't what I want it to be, and then they have to, like, they might have to stray away and then come back to it on their own free will or stray away and stay away, I guess, you know? Right. Didn't mean to rhyme there, but, um... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think at that point, uh, to go along with what you're saying, it had become, like, a more of a social construct mm -hmm. than an actual, you know, following of belief. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. um, I think that, I mean, and then just to, like, point out, like, Bronte brings the book full circle by ending the book with um, Jane saying, Amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, that's just that's just her way of, like, tying it all together and, like, concluding that despite, you know, whatever, like, Jane's 
um, beliefs are like specifically now like religion has impacted her life so much that there's no way you can't bring it in at the end like it'll always be a part of her yeah, yeah, it's also closure. Like yeah. almost yeah. The, her whole, I mean, she t- does have religious trauma with Mr. Brocklehurst and some of the things at Lowood. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that almost like ending the book with an amen is like ending the prayer, ending the conversation with mm-hmm. yeah. us and Jane and also her and God. Right. And it kind of shows like she was confused about religion when she was younger. And then through the journey of her life that we get to see mm-hmm. through the book, it's almost like we were ending on a note of closure, like she's comfortable with her relationship with religion, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I like that note of ending, because, you know, when you end a prayer, you say amen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. it's that, like, tie in amen. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, that's our... Impossible questions. Impossible questions. On a note of ambiguity, um, one of the most ambiguous plot points is Bertha and her whole character. Um, the first... When we were first starting to research about this project, we the first question I asked personally was, why is Bertha portrayed as feral, uh, almost? Like, why is she being caged into um, Thornfield? Uh, she's very animalistic as well. Yes. Yeah, very animal. They say that she, like, um, bites almost people. bites people. She, mm-hmm. anytime she can get fire she yeah. starts a fire she's like growling like, she's like very like um, primal prime yes like, primal that's a like, great good word. word like fire you know yeah. yeah i guess like so we were our first question was why is she portrayed like this and one of the first thoughts that mm-hmm. came to my head was maybe this is charlotte bronte trying to portray mental illness through bertha mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and why she might have became like that i was looking more into the backstory of bertha and Mr. Rochester doesn't ever mention one point of trauma or um, traumatic experience that might have uh, led to her having this this almost debilitating portrayal. Um, and as we talked about earlier, maybe Bronte was trying to get at that she's the opposite of Jane or the angry part of Jane that's coming out through her. Um, yeah, so we were thinking, is this a portrayal of mental illness, or maybe is this something um, closer with religion, or... Like her representing some form of, like, demon, almost. Yeah, like, yes. Like, like more of a like, possession. Or like, or, like, Jane's inner demons that, like, her come to religion yes. allows her to push mm-hmm. away, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Or, like, a temptress, because um, I, we always talk about women in portrayal in books is usually either as a temptress or as a saint. Yeah, like or, a yes. mother figure. Or a mother figure. Yeah. Um, and is that, (laughs) (laughs) is this, uh, Bronte trying to bring in some of the classic literature that she's seen, um, where women are always portrayed as, um, beasts or mothers? Um, is this her trying to bring her feminism back into this book where Mm -hmm. she didn't have a choice in life? Uh, she's only read books or experienced media through, uh, where women are portrayed as temptress or beasts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, I wanted to add to that, like, um, with I actually lost my train. Um, she Bertha is, I guess, like she's obviously the opposite of Jane. Like we said, she might be the demon that like Jane is fighting or things like that. But um, I actually lost my train of thought, so I forget what I was okay. going to say. But um, if it comes back, we'll like, yeah. get back to it. Um, I think part of this, um, this whole like of her feralness, feralness. 
Emma yeah. Lord for being feral. Yeah, her being feral. Excuse me. Um, it comes from the fact that, like, it comes down to, like, maybe the fact that she was, like, caged. Like, she hasn't been loved. Like, even though yeah. she's married to Rochester, like, where is the love there? He he locked away yeah. um, his wife. And obviously there's that, you know, maybe it's mental illness. Maybe because of the religion they think it's, like, she's possessed or a demon. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, like... When someone isn't loved and they're loved and they're neglected. I, yeah. They also mentioned briefly about her mother uh-huh. also being um, yeah. kind oh, of yeah. crazy. Yeah. And so that makes me think, is it um, them trying to portray um, an illness that, yeah. can carry, that can be carried through family? Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why Mr. Rochester um, does, doesn't want to be close with her because um, he doesn't want his children to have one yeah. of this... Um, yeah. illness is. And it, right. This could also be representative, I kind of remember what I want to say, to be representative of the attitude towards mental illness at the time and the understanding mm-hmm. because it was so, so limited. Oh, yeah. Even yes. up until recent years, it's been so limited. People have just, right. mm-hmm. people mistake. It's a taboo topic. Like, yeah, People completely. don't want to talk about it. Yeah, like, and, yeah. It, and it, that doesn't help the stigma around mm-hmm. it in general. Mm-hmm. And also with Bertha, she definitely is obviously not normal like there's yes. right whether it's like she's just completely insane for whatever reason or it's like a specific mental illness she's fighting jane or not jane sorry bronte might be like trying to portray this this idea that if women weren't perfect if they had issues or like like men were allowed to be angry men were allowed to start wars but if women didn't like sit there and be perfect and be perfect wives and mothers they were like um like exiled from society pretty much you know yeah. and bertha was like she wasn't perfect obviously she had some other issues she was violent but, right. but it, it might be bronte trying to portray or it is bronte trying to portray the her i like the idea that and her feminism and the, her, the mm-hmm. idea that if women weren't perfect they were locked away and they were like they were no you can't be part of society anymore. right mm-hmm. that's really good yeah this whole like the whole thing surrounding bertha is just ambiguous as a whole um, mm-hmm. Because it's so open ended, like we never go. even meet her as no. well. Uh-uh. Like, mm-hmm. like she, she's just this mysterious figure that we have no clue, like anything about, except for we have like general ideas of what she does. And we right. only learn about her backstory through Rochester and Jane's uh, uh, writing her down about the conversation of with Rochester. So it's almost like a it's like three people to get to the real story of Bertha. Right. We don't really. There's no, no primary, like, account. Yeah. It's all, like, secondary her sources. Whole, I think her whole characterization is ambiguous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, moving to irony? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, so what I first thought of when um, we said, like, irony in Jane Eyre, the entire book, like, this is very broad and very general, and we can get into specifics later, but the entire book is ironic in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, because... You pick up the book, and, and I was even guilty of this. Like, I picked up the book. I was like, oh, like, a romance novel. I'll yeah, read like, that. Like a romance yeah. feminist lit novel. Yeah, like, a cute, yeah. you know, yeah, it'll Victor- be cute. Like, it's fun. <laughs> like a Victorian love story. Yeah, a Victorian yeah. love story. And then you read it, and you realize that it does not follow the storyline of mm-hmm. what you think it is at yeah. all. Like, I thought it was going to be chill, and, like, she's just... Trying to find herself yeah, in like this. the different elements of, like, right. religious trauma. Like, yeah, this the gothic ther- stuff yeah, thrown like, in. Yeah, mental illness. Gothic, like, yeah. mental illness, like, ferality. Or, um, yeah, and, and yeah. Then, and, like, and, like, like, plot, like, triangles and, like, there are different love interests. and things. Like, It's all very different and, like, it's a, it's right. a journey of self-discovery as well, but it's very deep and dark and different yeah. than what you so were you have this Yeah, you have this idea in your head of, like, oh, cute Victorian romance novel. 
crack open the spine, it is not, it is not what you think. So mm-hmm. I just saw that as, like, it's a whole, it's wholly ironic with it itself. Um, <laughs> and then, um, there's another idea of, uh, going along with religion again, about how she is, like, uh, supposed to be a devout woman, you know, as, like, you know, growing up in religion and, um, following, you know, the teachings of her childhood or whatever, but she isn't really, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it, there's irony in that as well. Like, she's supposed to be devout and follow the religion, but she's not devout in the truest sense of the word and, like, of the of the standards for religion of that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. And also, another point of irony is that um, Mr. Rochester goes blind. He loses one eye, and then he goes blind mm-hmm. in the other, and he regains it later. But he loved Jane and thought she was beautiful, and then when she finally came back to him, he couldn't see her. Yeah. And that is ironic because he fell in love with her, and then he, um, like, he drove her away through lies. Yeah. And then, as, like, um, ironic universal punishment, like, he couldn't see her anymore when she came back until Mm -hmm. he Mm -hmm. learned to be honest and love her and build a true relationship with her, and then he regained his sight at the end. Yes. It's like a third eye, like, one... He has to lose his physical sight to open up his third eye and realize the situation that he put Jane in. Mm -hmm. He did lie and be completely um, distrustful of Jane. He didn't tell her the truth. He tricked her. And I think losing his physical vision brings the truth, um, makes him see the truth of the situation and also is a plot device to bring... Jane and him even closer than they yeah, were at Thornfield because he sees the world mm-hmm. through her. Yes. Um, she is the center of his, of yeah. his universe at and that point because she is his she eyes and ears. Yeah. Yeah. Eyes and ears. Like, and yeah. it's no longer the man leading the woman, it's the woman leading the man. Yeah, yes. exactly. And that's, that's like, the irony like, the yeah. of, of and the whole situation. And the feminist, the feminist undertones and the feminist overtones as well in the novel, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and with, like, Mr. Rochester, he was blinded by his, like, greed and love for Jane that he was blind to the idea that he should be honest with her, you know? Yes. And then when he is actually blinded, which is ironic in the point that he, in that way, when he was actually blinded instead of just metaphorically blinded by his greed and love, he realizes his wrongdoings and he realizes Mm -hmm. that he should, and he needs to be honest and he needs to open up and, like, be open with Jane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Um, do we want to get into our power passages now? Yes. Okay. So we chose two power passages. Um, the first one that we chose was Helen's final goodbye, and this this monologue, as I've spoken earlier, is kind of a uh, is the bringing of religion into the book, and it also is an important yeah. part of Jane's story because this Helen is Jane's first friend, first person who shows that she really cares about Jane and Jane is is belonging in a relationship that's and shows uh, her that she's deserving of love yes shows her that she's deserving of love and she has to lose her and whether Helen is saying uh, telling her about her faith in God and that she will be with God to um, comfort Jane or herself it they really the, the comfort of God brings them both comfort in the situation that she's dying and it's Mm -hmm. also um ironic that uh helen dies of an illness that is not going through the school like everyone in school was dying of typhus yes but she died of consumption and consumption back then was seen as a very beautiful 
death as you get paler and you just kind of fade away. She didn't have the corruption of typhus and the um, disease, the disgusting disease of typhus. She right. was a beautiful death. Um, mm -hmm. And she, she Helen comforts her because she says that um, you will come to the same region of happiness, be deceived by the same mighty universal parent, no doubt. And that universal parent is Brit is Helen telling her that she has a parent, even though she was born as an orphan. She has a parent. She has someone yeah. to go to when she needs help. Yeah, that's that idea of like God is the heavenly Father, you know, mm -hmm. or we say like Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, mm -hmm. all of that. That's that idea, like that Father that um, that Helen's referencing, the alluding to. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's why it's such a powerful passage, mm -hmm. and it's so important to the story. Right, is it is a giant and major turning point. Yeah. point for Jane. Jane. I mean, Helen was the first person that Jane, like, truly cared about. So, and that truly cared about Jane. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, the impact of that death is exponentially greater because mm -hmm. of the fact that they had an emotional connection. Mm -hmm. It wasn't um, the abuser and, you know, Jane. Yeah. And they were so young as well, so it established a lot of, like, undertones and um, I guess um, a lot, and it established a lot of undertones and, I guess, like, Processes of Jane's life and how she like copes and deals with and views such big issues like death and religion and things like that. Yeah, and that, I think that's why it is so important. The novel. Mm -hmm. And also, she says it's my last home, my final home. Like the low Lowood was just a turning point for them. That she was going mm -hmm. to her final home, and that's kind of brings into like the last sentence where she says, "Amen." So even come, Lord Jesus. Yeah. And she knows that no matter what happens in her life, that, like there will be another like home and comfort waiting for her. You know, even though she's found her, I guess, physical realm comfort in Mr. Rochester and, and right. at their house. Mm -hmm. The idea of um, you know here being temporary and you know moving on being eternity and comfort after Shane death. For sure. They comfort Shane for sure. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, our second power passage. Our second power passage was about Mr. Uh, Mr. Rochester and Jane reuniting. Um, this is important because they this time they're reunited as equals. Mr. Rochester has lost the importance of his house. His house has been burned down. He's now without sight, uh, without an, a hand. He's cri he's crippled now. Uh, he needs help with every little uh, little every little situation in his yeah. life. He needs a, a right hand person. And so now they're kind of on equal levels, but because before he was such a great man, he had a house, he has money, he's older, now they're equals. And that's important to them reuniting because now they are bringing, being brought closer together. Mm -hmm. um, and then also their conversation about her choosing him over so, uh, Mr. Rochester over St. John, even though he was the... Um, Standard or like on paper better choice, pa yeah. better choice, uh, almost safer option. Too. Safer, yeah, for sure, yeah. safer. Because now Mr. Rochester doesn't really have a home, mm -hmm. and he doesn't have. She's like she's fighting for love at this point, right? Yeah, Instead she's of what is expected for her for her own right. happiness, right? Which um, is a turning point because she again throughout the whole novel, like we said in our impossible question, she doesn't feel like she's deserving of happiness. She doesn't want to let her let her self mm -hmm. be happy. She thinks that right. she should just force herself to do what society expects because. She's not worth following her own happiness and dreams. And in this passage, we see that she does and she wants mm -hmm. to because she wants to be with Rochester. And she finally realizes mm -hmm. that right. I don't have to punish myself. I can accept mm -hmm. 
this love because I deserve it. Yeah. And her whole life, she's been impacted by this idea of social status and how she's so low on the scale. And then she builds it up again. But, you know, like you said, Rochester doesn't have a house. Yeah, he has his title or, you know, whatever he has. But, you know, there's no, like, physical, you know... Security? Being of what his wealth is at this point and security. Yeah. Um, so, in this sense, like you guys said, like, she's just fighting for love. There's There's no social like physical description of her social status mm-hmm. at this point mm-hmm. she even says he is good and great but and but severe and for me cold as an iceberg he is not like you sir i am not happy at his side and nor near him nor with him so she's saying you are the one i love i love you you showed me true love you and showed you me i am deserving happy. you make me happy i choose happiness in this and life i choose mm-hmm. to be happy yeah, yeah. not not to miserable. punish myself yes and with what society wants her to do mm-hmm yeah. So I think that is the yeah. conclusion. I think I'm that, sorry this yes. is so long. It is very long. <laughs> Jane Eyre's but got yeah. a lot of meat to it that yeah. we had to get through. She's a, she's a thick no. But, I hope your um, elliptical is going well. <laughs> yeah, yes. I hope you, hopefully you didn't have to go to elliptical for as long as this podcast is. Yes. Uh, so enjoy. Hope everyone who listens to this gets something out of it. Uh, bye. Bye. Thank bye. you.